0: Our scripture reading is Psalm 90. Psalm 90, hear the word of the Lord. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting you are God. You turn man to destruction and say, Return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past and like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep in the morning. They are like grass which grows up In the morning it flourishes and grows up, in the evening it is cut down and withers. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. For all our days have passed away in your wrath, we finish our years like a sigh The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? And have compassion on your servants. O satisfy us early with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. And then follows the text for this afternoon's sermon. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands for us, yes, establish the work of our hands. After the sermon, we'll sing in response from Psalm 127, the stanzas 1 and 2. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when We pray for God's blessing, we're expressing our dependence on the Lord. This isn't something that we do only once a year at this prayer service for crops and labor. We do it daily. It happens every time we fold our hands, close our eyes, and enter His throne room with our supplications and petitions. So, what we're doing here in this annual prayer service is nothing unique. Nothing out of the ordinary. It's part and parcel of our life in Christ. By beseeching God for his blessing on everything we do, we're confessing how limited and helpless we are in ourselves. We would have no bodily provisions, no material goods, no earthly possessions if God didn't provide them. We're not in any position to feed and care for ourselves. Even if a table were set before us here, heaped with food and drink, if God didn't give us the strength and the coordination of hand and arm to reach out and take it, we would go hungry. Think of King Jeroboam. When he stretched out his hand, pointing at the prophet from Judah and shouting orders for his men to arrest him, God suddenly made his arm go rigid so that he couldn't pull it back. His arm was restored only after the prophet had entreated the Lord to heal him. God gives us everything, right down to the enzymes that break food down in our stomachs. Even then, if God did not put his blessing power into the food that we ate, it wouldn't nourish us. We would slowly waste away because we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. If we backtrack even further, before the bread gets to our table, we see that God's blessing is indispensable. Sure, he He could drop loaves from heaven ready-made as he did for the Israelites in the desert. Or feed us directly as he did Elijah at the brook Cherith. But that's not God's normal way of providing for his people. He does it in the way of cultivating, sowing, weeding, and harvesting. But from where do the seeds come that farmers plant? From the Lord, who created plants in such a way that they bear seed, each according to its kind. Fields need to be prepared for sowing. But if God doesn't supply the right weather conditions, nothing will grow. If he gives too much rain, crops will be flooded and rot in the fields. If he gives no rain, the whole growing season shuts down right there. He can send fungus or mold. Wipes out everything. Nothing happens by chance, we confess. Leaf and blade come from his fatherly hand. Yes, the Lord demands that we work. He makes use of you and me in providing. Proverbs, as you know, is filled with that truth. He who tills his land will be satisfied with bread. God uses us as instruments to supply our needs. But more than instruments we are not. What Paul said about the spiritual realm also applies to the physical. Neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the growth. And so I proclaim to you the Word of God under this theme. Like Moses... Pray for the Lord's blessing on the labor of your hands. And such a prayer includes a petition for, in the first place, the manifestation of God's work. And secondly, the establishment of our work. Usually, brothers and sisters, Psalm 90, the oldest psalm in the Bible, is read on New Year's Eve. With the passing of another year, we reflect with the psalmist on the eternity of God He remains unaffected by time. From everlasting to everlasting, He is God. And that contrasts so sharply with us. We're frail and mortal and weak. Our lives are soon cut off and we fly away. Seventy years we receive, and if by reason of strength, eighty At the end of the year, we realize that another precious amount of our short life has passed and we feel the force of verse 12 that teach us, O Lord, to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. But there's more to this psalm, as we'll see, than just a confession about the eternal God and mortal man. The title indicates that it's a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Moses was mighty not only in deeds, but also in words. As the mediator of the Old Covenant, he was constantly interceding, praying for God's people. The conditions of Israel in the wilderness form the backdrop for this prayer. If we see the psalm as written for the twelve tribes in the desert then we can understand the opening verse. Moses, in effect, is saying, though we are wanderers in this howling wilderness, yet we find a home in you. Lord, you have been our dwelling place. And that's true not just for his generation, he admits, but throughout the past, in all generations. Our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, lived in tents among the Canaanites, but you were their dwelling place as well. God is our home. He shelters, comforts, protects, preserves, and cherishes us. How much more meaningful is the saying, there's no place like home, when home is the unchanging, almighty, eternal creator Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the saints dwell in God. Moses expresses the same reality in his final blessing in Deuteronomy 33. Just before he died, he gathered all the children of Israel together and assured them, the eternal God is your dwelling place. A remarkable expression The Apostle Paul, as you know, writes that we are the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. But Moses inverts that and affirms that God is our dwelling place. Not the temple, not heaven, not paradise, but God Himself. By so doing, Moses shows how safe and certain and enduring our lives are. Because if God, is our dwelling place. And He's eternal. It follows that we who dwell in Him will live forever. Now how is that communion in God possible? We're sinful people and God's indignation burns against sin. Moses of all people was fully aware of that. A whole generation of Israelites died in the wilderness because of their disobedience. Moses himself was not allowed to enter the promised land because he didn't honor the Lord as holy when he smacked that rock. The recognition of God's righteous wrath and of His just judgment against sin is revealed in the verses 7 and 8. For we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath. We are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you. All sin, brothers and sisters, is rebellion against God. In view of His past mercies and love shown to Israel, their rebellion is all the more heinous and atrocious. How could they grieve? So good, so loving a God. He brought them out of Egypt with an outstretched arm. He fed them in the desert with a liberal hand. He Guided them with a tender hand and yet they forsook His covenant. They doubted His promises. They disobeyed His commands. Sin, it's the root of our mortality. It's the source of our feebleness and frailty. That's why Moses goes on to state that we bring our years to an end like a sigh. How is it possible for Israel and for the church today to have the Lord God as their dwelling place only in and through the coming Messiah who would atone for the sins of God's people? God turned all this anger that He's talking about here in this psalm, He turned it all against Him. And He laid our iniquities on Him. He afflicted Him with our punishment. Through Christ we're reconciled to god he is our resurrection and life he's given us the power of easter which never diminishes our life is hidden with christ in god and when we and we know that we dwell in god when we believe that god sent his son into the world for us when we keep his commandments when we abide in his love And that must be obvious in our everyday life. Wasn't it the Lord Jesus who said, He who abides in me and I in him, he it is who bears much fruit. At the beginning of this season of growth, we implore God for his blessing so that our labors are fruitful. If I'm a grain farmer, I'm hoping for fields rippling with wheat and barley and oats If a dairy farmer, a full quota of milk every week. If a mechanic, a steady stream of cars that need to be repaired. If a minister, a congregation that applies my preaching. If a teacher, a class of dedicated students. And so you could go on for every occupation. But before those results can be enjoyed or even prayed for, we ourselves need to be bringing forth fruits. Fruits of righteousness and holiness to God. If He's not our dwelling place, if we're not doing His will, how can we expect His blessing? He tells us over and over again in His Word that He blesses obedience. And it's that prerequisite with which our text begins as well. Let your work be shown to your servants. What a beautiful order in these closing verses of Moses' prayer. God's work, verse 16, and then our work, verse 17. For our work to be established, we need to see God's work. And to what exactly is Moses' Referring, since it isn't spelled out here, we need to see how this word is used elsewhere in the Bible. Let's limit ourselves to the writings of Moses, since this is his prayer. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, Moses proclaims, God's work is perfect. And then follows, A detailed account of how God chose Israel as His portion. He encircled them. He instructed them. He kept them as the apple of His eye. Just like an eagle carries its young on its wings, so the Lord carries His people. So His work of providence is meant. Let Your work be visible, O God. Your work of providing. For all our needs. Your work of upholding and governing creation. Of making spring follow winter and summer follow spring. Your work of causing the seed to sprout. The rain to fall. The sun to shine. How often God's people when financially doing very well. Forget and forsake the one who gave it all to them timely petition this was for Israel just before they entered Canaan since it was a country flowing with milk and honey. Their God would no longer be providing for them directly with manna and quail from heaven. He would still be providing for them but indirectly by means of the land and rain and sun and dew even. And sure enough, Israel soon forgot about God's work. With their vineyards and orchards, their fields and flocks, their cisterns and wells, they started to feel self-sufficient. They became prosperous. And like a fattened cow, they kicked back at their owner. They scornfully esteemed the rock of their salvation. Of ourselves... We cannot see God's work of providing. Only through the lens of His Word can we discern, can we make out His sustaining power in our lives. We need the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit as well. Why? Because our minds have been darkened with sin. And I'd like you to notice in this psalm, the humility of Moses. He refers to himself and to God's people as servants. Let your work appear to your servants. Well, the main characteristic of a servant is that he obeys. He listens. He doesn't do things his own way, but God's way. He doesn't work for himself, but for his master. He lives to give his master joy. And to hear from his lips, well done, you good and faithful servant. Like servants, you and I are accountable to our divine Lord. If he entrusts something to us, if he gives us something to accomplish, then we guard it and we use it to the utmost of our ability. We will all be summoned before the judgment seat of Christ where each one of us will receive the things done in the body, whether good or bad. Opportunities, gifts, time, talents, money. Master will ask us on that day what we've done with them. And this accountability doesn't just cover the prime of our life when we're young and strong, but our whole life. Every year, every day, every hour even. Moses continues with the plea, let your glory appear to their children. The generation whom Moses taught and led died in the wilderness. Every one of them except the two faithful spies, remember? Joshua and Caleb. The children then, for whom Moses is praying, are the sons and daughters of that disobedient generation. They were the ones who would inherit the promised land. And you know, this request of Moses was answered. They saw the splendor and the majesty of the Lord in His dealing with them in the wilderness, in His day-to-day provision of their bodily needs. And they were the most devoted to God of any generation. It was of them that the Lord said, I remember you the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal when you went after me in the wilderness in a land not sown. You were holiness to me, the first fruits of my increase. John Calvin makes the comment that by this example, we're taught not just to pray for ourselves, but also for our children. God has promised That his church will exist even to the end of the world. And so we must commend the welfare of the church to him. Praying for our children and our grandchildren. That they may grow up to love him and to serve him and to see his work. And let the beauty, verse 17, of the Lord our God be upon us. We came across the same word in our singing of Psalm 27. There David says, One thing have I desired of the Lord, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold what? The beauty of my Lord. In other words, God's beauty is displayed in the tent of meeting, in the ministry of reconciliation performed by the priests. There God is present in His condescension, in His grace and mercy toward His people. That favor, that loving kindness, the forgiveness of our sins is God's beauty. He stoops to sinful, weak, unworthy people and He pours out on them an abundance of his gifts. The prayer of the psalmist, that this beauty of the Lord be upon us indicates that it's bestowed on us from above. It's not something we can generate by ourselves. It's given by God. His beauty is the one thing we need when we consider the sorrow and trouble that we endure in this veil of tears. The psalm speaks about all our days having passed away in God's wrath, about our secret sins exposed by the light of His countenance. In light of our dreary and weary existence, our certain mortality, the evils within and the sufferings without, we throw ourselves into the arms of God asking that His beauty be upon us. There is no value nor meaning in either our joys or sorrows unless both send us to God and make us long for His loveliness. We don't know how well the crops will do during this growing season. Starting off really wet. We don't know how strong the economy will be in the coming months. Nevertheless, whether a fruitful or barren year, the one aspiration of our heart should be, let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. That alone will consecrate our work. I have to do that in my study. You in your shop, your office, your kitchen, your barn, your combine, your classroom... Because then we're working for God and through God and to God. He's the motive and the power of our daily work. When His beauty is upon us, then we reflect that beauty in our financial dealings, in our contributions to the church, in our business transactions, in our buying and selling, in our wheeling and dealing. The beauty of holiness... That's the beauty which shone so resplendent in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we today, through His Word and Spirit, are being transformed after His image from glory to glory. Observing God's work, beholding God's glory, reflecting God's beauty. If we're busy with that, then we can be certain That God will answer our prayer concerning the establishment of our work, the second point. The thought that life is so fleeting, brothers and sisters, that everything passes away so quickly, might lead you to say, What's the sense of doing anything? I may just as well sit back and let things slide. Why put all that effort and zeal into my occupation if 50 years down the road, no one's going to remember anything I said or did? Besides that, the whole world is subject to death and decay. What gives permanence and stability to our work is our relationship to the eternal God. He remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not subject to death and decay. And so if He is our dwelling place, we can pray in childlike faith, establish the work of our hands for us. Moses says it twice, which highlights the intensity and the earnestness of this petition. Our work will be firm... If it is God's work. This petition, don't forget, follows after the one in verse 16: let your work appear to your servants. My work will endure when it's God's work done through me. When we bring our wills into harmony with God's revealed will, when we place all our efforts in the line of His purpose, then our work will stand. And for what purpose? Has God placed us on this earth in, in the variety of our occupations to glorify Him? We're not working to serve ourselves, to make a name for ourselves, or to get the most out of the pleasures of this life. We're here to serve God, to promote His glory, and further His kingdom. Now that doesn't mean that what he gives us we may not use for our own well-being or pleasure, not at all. The laborers worthy of his wages, as Paul says somewhere, who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat of the fruit, or who tends a flock and doesn't drink of the milk. Nevertheless, that doesn't take away from the chief purpose for which God gives us spiritual and material goods, namely for his service and for his glory. And that means we may not take care of our own needs while neglecting those of His kingdom. We're unfaithful servants if we don't place the church and the ministry of mercy, our missionary task, and Christian schools at the top of our budgets. Lord Jesus told us plain as day, Seek first my kingdom and its righteousness, And then all those other needs will be fulfilled as well. Food and drink, clothing and housing. God who who clothes the, the lilies of the field will not let his children go cold. God who feeds the young ravens will not let his children go hungry. It requires trust on our part. We have to believe that If we do what he says, he will not leave us without the necessities of life. Now we've been talking mainly about the gift of wealth, but God also grants us other gifts. He may have endowed us, for example, with the qualities and the abilities to be an office bearer in his church, but if we're so busy with our daily work that we can't set aside time for serving in office, then our prayer about establishing the work of our hands will fall on deaf ears. With the ordination of office bearers this, this afternoon, it's fitting to dwell on that for a moment. Though elders and deacons labor in a spiritual vineyard in the church of God, how needful it is for God's favor To be upon them. And for God to establish their ecclesiastical work. In the back of your book of praise. There's a prayer for the meetings of the deacons. And it contains this beautiful petition. Bless we pray. Our work of mercy. That we all may praise and thank you. While we await the blessed appearance of your son. Who became poor for our sake. That he might enrich us with eternal treasures. All our work as office bearers and as members will be firmly established only if the beauty of the Lord is upon us. Whoever has the love of God in his heart, whoever shows his mercy, will perform lasting work. It will not be swept away. In the purifying fire of the last day, John in Revelation writes, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. And this is what comes next. And their works follow them. Follow them into the new Jerusalem. We need to quietly do our work for God and to God. Instead of worrying about the results, we need to ensure that our motives are pure. God will take care of the results. Let us be concerned about the motives. If we're working for the right purpose and in the right spirit, then our work will be eternal. Eternal? Eternal? You ask, how can that be? Because it's taken up In the great whole of God's activity. An activity that results in the establishment of his eternal kingdom. You find the same thing expressed by the author of Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And here too we are shown that the most important thing is how we are building. All of us are obliged to work and build. It's the mandate God gave our first parents. Keep the garden until it have dominion over all creation. God holds us to that mandate also today. But we're called to apply ourselves in the certain conviction that it's the Lord who works. To put that another way, we work according to the blueprint and the materials of the master architect. If we're faithful in that, then the Lord is building And you and I are building with him. God has set us at our place and station here on earth. Heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. That's where we are called to be busy. At God's footstool. So many people don't know their place. They drift from one job to the next. Others frantically try to build their own kingdom. Still others think that work is the end-all and the be-all. How comforting to know that the Father up above has placed us at our task here below. We work under the throne of grace The Creator of this world has made a world for us, a place where we can kneel at His feet, a place for praying to Him, just like Moses was doing in our text. He's given us a work area where we can serve Him as male and female servants, for He is governing us in and through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's why we have contentment In our work. That's why the monotony is broken. Because Christ is seated in heaven. We go about our work in the peace of the cross. And that awareness enables us to deal with all the distractions and the setbacks and the letdowns that happen on the job. All of us, young and old, however, need to be building on the foundation that God has laid. Namely, the atoning sacrifice of His beloved Son. Three Sundays ago, you commemorated the resurrection of our Lord. We live in the fulfillment of Christ's earthly ministry. He overcame the grave. He defeated Satan. He ascended to the Father. Well, in the certain expectation of that victory, Moses prayed, O Lord God, establish the work of our hands for us. And Paul triumphantly declares, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord laboring in the Lord. That means our work is done in the power of the resurrected Christ and in communion with Him. Our work days are in a sense, no, not every day, but in a sense, feast days. Because we work in the joy that everything has been accomplished for us. We can climb behind the wheel of our semi. We can stand in front of our classroom. We can crawl under that broken car Monday through Saturday knowing that our work is done under the blessing of Christ's work. He took the entire curse of God upon Himself. Also the curse on the earth which makes you and me work in the sweat of our face. The guilt that we can occur in our daily task when we grumble, when we complain, when we put ourselves first and God last. Christ made atonement for all that. He covers it in the sight of God with His perfect righteousness. And He takes your work and mine and He sanctifies it. purifies it so that it's pleasing to the Father. And useful for the coming of the Father's kingdom in glory. We work in and for the kingdom of God. A kingdom that will last forever. Where blood and sweat and pain and toil will cease. If that doesn't give us a boost, brothers and sisters. If that doesn't kick start you for Monday. Nothing will. So have an eye, not only for God's providential work, but also for Christ's redemptive work. Focus on the glory of God that's been revealed in the greater than Moses, and let the beauty of your Savior be reflected in all that you say and do. Then you can be sure that God in Christ will establish the work of your hands. Amen.